All right, so before I get started, I'm gonna ask you a few questions uh, to make sure that this session is actually useful for you. Uh, because this was a super weird session for me to write. I had to pretend that I was trying to tell my uncle who hasn't coded for 10 years all the things that he needs to think about as he moves serverless into production. Which, um, yeah, it was. this is like a survey presentation um, because each one of the topics that we're gonna cover, I gotta be honest with you, it deserves its own presentation in and of itself, but good news, those sessions are very, very, very likely already here this week. So what you're gonna get in this session is we're gonna identify a lot of the considerations both uh, when you're thinking about microservice, but also when you're applying serverless technologies into microservice architectures. Uh, so here's my questions. Uh, number one, uh, how many of you guys have a microservice strategy today? Raise your hand. Sweet. How many of you guys are using Lambda today? How many of you are using Lambda for a production mission-critical workload? Cool. That means not necessarily IT automation and data transformation, but like stuff. All right. Stuff is a technical term. Um, and then how many of you have um, like a, a conscious uh, API strategy within your organizations? Cool. So less than the microservice thing. That's kind of interesting. All right, cool. That gives me a cool, uh, a, a general idea. So like I said, this isn't a terribly technical session. Um, my job is mainly to expose a framework or problems or stuff that you need to think about. So if I see on my, the survey results that, oh my God, this wasn't a technical session, you're super sad about it, now is your opportunity to leave. Cool. All right. So when we think about um, moving into serverless microservice architectures, there are clearly a lot of advantages um, for organizations um, because this is how we, a lot of folks are being able to move faster and at the pace of their own customers. For instance, Capital One, Guardian, McDonald's, FINRA, all of these organizations are moving fairly aggressively into uh, serverless and microservice architectures. But we gotta figure out why and what the benefits are before we actually get into what are the challenges or things you need to think about. So this is what we're gonna cover today. We're gonna talk about microservice architectures, the organizational changes. We're gonna talk a little bit about tool chain management. We're gonna lightly touch on security. Again, needs a whole session in and of itself. We're gonna talk about monolith to microservice considerations, and then how are you applying serverless uh, for modernization into those architectures? How are we going to think about TCO? How serverless is more than compute? And then we're gonna talk a lot about adoption patterns that we see out in the wild. Um, I've been with AWS uh, six years. This is my seventh reInvent. Um, and we've experienced a lot of changes in cloud computing over the course of that time. Um, and and um, we've covered a lot of different uh, uh, technologies, at least me personally. In fact, I've changed roles just about every year that I've been at AWS, because I gotta be honest with you, it's a little bit like a candy store over here. And so everywhere we release a new service and I'll go, ooh, maybe I should go work on that. So that's why we're sort of doing a survey course that's gonna cover a lot of different technologies is because a lot of these technologies I've kind of worked on already. All right, so let's start with people and changes to the organization. All right, you guys have heard of two pizza teams, raise your hand. Yeah, awesome. It's a great story, right? How are we gonna uh, release more code? We are going to break up our teams into two pizza teams. I did have to ask that, how many people are in two pizza teams? Because, you know, I think it would vary from Minnesota to Taiwan. It turns out it's four to six individuals. And this sounds really good. You know, it, the story that we were able to break up our development teams from developing large monolithic applications into smaller applications. And we were doing it to uh, address a very real challenge. And that challenge was to release code faster. We had a monolithic application. Hey, uh, just so y'all know, the timer isn't going. And if y'all want me to stop in 60 minutes, you should let me know. Just FYI. Um, 
So how do we move, or why, why we were making this choice is because it was taking 11 hours of downtime to actually apply code changes uh, back in 2011. As you can imagine, we were moving a little bit faster in 2011, .com boom and all that, um, but so releasing code about four times a year wasn't really meeting the needs of our customers. All right, so we made this idea to move to microservices. Back in the day, we called it uh, service-oriented architecture. But the, this idea of breaking things up, it's not necessarily an entirely new idea since we started this journey really long time ago. Now, if you think about 2001, we didn't have containers, we didn't have serverless, we didn't have the cloud, we didn't have a lot of the things that we take for granted today when we're thinking about microservice architectures. We just wanted to figure out how to release code faster. So by moving into these two pizza teams, we gave these teams more autonomy and ownership and we developed a term for called DevOps, you know, DevOps together better, it's gonna be fabulous and this is how we're gonna get more code out faster. And I gotta be honest with you, marketing loves this story. It involves the word pizza and everybody grocks it. But things did not really get real until we got the Bezos mandate. Bezos sent out an email that said, thou shalt have hardened APIs and failure to do so will result in you being fired, thank you and have a nice day. Whoa. This is a hard right turn. I'm gonna be fired if I don't use an API-driven strategy? I don't, what? APIs are publicly managed and, and stuff. Why do I need to manage APIs internally? The reason why we had to make this significant change was, well, without a hardened API, people were still going around and using the resources behind the team. So we had to define the team by our API definitions. This turn is really what made a difference for us to enable two pizza teams in order to um, actually build out uh, CICD within the organization. So now we have thousands of teams, all built on microservice architectures, enable CICD, and this is how we've gone to about 60 million uh, deployments per year. So let's talk about the changes that this means to the tool chain. I would love to say everything that you've been using in a completely serverful environment, you're going to be using in serverless. But it's not exactly true. And so I thought the best way to talk about how customers are putting together the tool chain was to just go through an example. So MasterStream is a leading provider of quote uh, soft management software for um, telecom industries. Uh, they do about 15 million automated quotes per year. Uh, and they initially decided to do a lift and shift into the cloud because yay, the cloud, it's gonna be so much better there. But they weren't getting the speed and the agility that they initially thought that they were gonna get. And so then they decided to convert their um, architecture into one microservices and then two enabling uh, serverless technologies. And so that way it would be completely event-driven. The move to a microservice, as y'all probably know, especially from a migration standpoint, is not easy. Um, if you're building a net new application, building on microservice architectures and building with serverless, it's kind of a no-brainer. Why do you want to manage servers anymore? But for migration, that's a little tougher because they, they need to exist at uh, then they need to uh, integrate this into their existing pipelines. So how they did it is they started with the deployment pipeline and they chose Stackery for this. Now Stackery is pretty cool because it inherently uses uh, SAM uh, as its underlying uh, architecture. Um, and so they were able to pull in developers much faster because they didn't have to uh, learn cloud formation. This abstraction layer actually um, sped their pipeline. And because Stackery integrates really well for them with Bitbucket um, and uh, CodeBuild, it was able to streamline with their existing pipeline. But then there's monitoring security and alerts. So they decided to use Epsigon, uh, which is a visualization layer on top of CloudWatch logs 
because they found that they needed a much more granular level of tracing um, than they had in the past so that they could find root cause problems faster. Uh, that is also integrated with PagerDuty for alerting. But then they also needed um, a security layer and security monitoring for um, malicious uh, opportunities within the, their, their code. So they decided to use Protego um, to integrate um, because they are quickly moving for SOC 2 compliance. And integrating Protego was an easier option for them, for them to then building their own security layer. Now, not every, every customer um, does this, uses um, all uh, partners within their tool chain. Some are building their own. Uh, T-Mobile, for instance, they have Jazz. Uh, Jazz is an open source project. You can find it on GitHub. Uh, in order to do what some of these partners already do. Uh, Netflix is using Spinnaker for exactly the, the same sort of reasons. Even on Amazon.com, we have a number of internal resources in order to streamline um, security, identity management, um, and uh, API management. All right, so now we're gonna talk about security, and this is kinda tough to talk about, to tell you the truth, because it totally deserves its own session. But here are a few things to consider as you're thinking about how do I secure my environment on a serverless stack? Uh, number one is the rise of the API. So when I asked you guys if you had an API strategy, in my world, that's inherent and hand-in-hand -hand with your microservice and your serverless strategy. Because now, identity and permissions are handled for the most part through the API and not necessarily through um, even down to the database layer uh, for item permissions. Now you're restricting access entirely through your front door. Some things are exactly the same in a serverful environment as serverless. For example, malicious code is still bad. You should prevent that. That doesn't necessarily go away. But when your compute is only lasting for a few minutes, max 15 minutes, certain, certain security risks are deprioritized that you need to be concerned with. Like, are you really gonna be worried about port sniffing when your compute is ephemeral? Probably not. Now the shared security is different when you're thinking about managed services. Look, all the things that you need to think about, whether you're using a managed service or a non-managed service, are still there. It's a matter of, do you have the systems in place to make sure that they're followed each and every time? So as we think about serverless and more abstraction from managing servers, well, you're going to have to think about that a little bit differently. Is this particular security risk being addressed by AWS and the managed service, or does it need to be addressed with a system within my stack? Oh, and one other thing. We recently, this year, uh, released a white paper on uh, security with Lambda. I highly recommend it if you have questions about what is under the hood. Um, but I'll be honest with you, whenever I do uh, large security reviews with multinational banks, Lambda usually isn't where we get stuck. There, it's all the other elements within their serverless stack that they tend to have questions about. So when you're going down this road, especially if you're in a highly compliant uh, industry, please reach out to us. We are more than happy to help you address some of those questions. I, uh, I remember when I would talk to customers you know, six, seven years ago, um, we would get a lot of questions about the security of the cloud. To be honest, a lot of those questions have largely gone away when thinking about EC2 because it's become so commonplace and integrated into common compliance protocols. Serverless isn't quite there yet, and so we're more than happy to work with you to answer those questions. So let's talk a little bit about changes to the architectural patterns. So back in my day, uh, I used to have three-tier web architectures uh, as you know my normal diagram. I don't anymore. Instead, I've got a much, much messier architecture diagram. I was working with a major airline, 
and these three enterprise architects uh, wanted to talk about, uh, like, you know, what are the changes to their environment by moving to serverless? And you want to know the question that really got them wrapped around the axle? And I swear, we spent 30 minutes on this, is how to draw the architecture diagram. Do I draw one lambda? Or do I draw 40 lambdas because it can go? And I was like, these aren't the droids you're looking for. This is not, no. <laughs> you should be managing your architecture by the API, right? If you're managing it by the API, then everything behind the API is uh, where your architecture diagram is going to have gravity, uh, much more so than a typical three-tier web architecture. I mean. Even the database is becoming distributed and um, tucked in behind the APIs, and we'll cover that a little bit uh, more in detail later. So internally, uh, one of the things that we do to uh, sort of mitigate the um, architecture gone wild problem of you know when you're building serverless architectures is that we have API bar raisers. So uh, how many of you guys are developers? Cool. What's the first thing you do as a developer when you're starting a new project? You don't have to answer because we've got the crazy headphone situation. Just think through it. What's the first thing you do? Okay? Your answer, hopefully, is steal stuff, right? Because as a developer, why create something that already exists? Go out and steal it. Well, let's pretend we couldn't steal it. In our environment, one of the first things we do is we write the API definition. The API definition gives an idea of what resources we're going to use to build behind the API and what the function of it, of that microservice is actually going to do. We submit that to the API bar raisers. We've got about, I don't know, eight, 10 of them embedded in uh, the service teams all over AWS, and they'll give you the thumbs up and thumbs down. They're primarily reviewing your API definition for things like scalability and security. You know what they're not reviewing for? Duplication. The stealing thing totally works, and if it doesn't, it's quickly resolved once you realize, oh my gosh, this code was already out there. But that process and that checking mechanism is really important for um, creating just a lightweight gateway for new API creation, because once they give the green light to the new API, then it goes into, for lack of a better word, phone book or address book, that we now know what is happening behind that API. And we don't have a lot of resources that aren't behind APIs that are in the wild within the environment. The changes to the delivery software should be self-evident to you guys, because if you have a monolithic development cycle where you have build, test, release, all having to wait on each other before they go through that cycle, you're going to be releasing a whole lot less code versus if you have an asynchronous pipeline where you can put things through the pipeline depending on the API, you're going to be able to release a lot more code faster. So where to start? Let's say you have a monolithic application and you want to move to microservices. What are some of the key considerations? Well, first of all, you should start with the events. Um, just like Masterstream or Amazon.com back in the day, the first thing you need to do is to establish where you want to put your APIs within your monolithic application. Okay, so your next step is to try to figure out how many events to put behind that API. Is it just going to be one or going to be multiple? Let's walk through an example. Uh, let's say you hit the shopping cart button on Amazon.com. Okay, great, that's an API request. But there's actually three calculations when you hit the shopping cart. There's the tabulation of all the items in the cart. There's tax. There's shipping. Are those each APIs, or are we all going to include that behind the, AP, the shopping cart API? So that decision and that consideration is something that is actually probably a two-way door for you, right? You can always go back and change that one. So it's not necessary to get it perfectly right the first time. But it is important to think about how you want these events to work and what is the granularity and uniqueness of the event. For example, if you have a lot of reasons that you need to tabulate shipping and call the shipping API, but not through the shopping cart, then that would be a great reason to separate that out into a separate API so that other things can call it. 
So the granularity or the uniqueness of the event becomes inherent of how you're establishing your API definitions. Now, of course, we have a two pizza team rule, which is a finite number of resources behind the API definition, but understandably, not everybody has that uh, aggressive of a resource allocation. But it is something you need to think about as far as the event to API ratio. Also, remember your database. So we're gonna go into this a little bit deeper, but if you have a collection of microservices all clustered around the same database, you're gonna to have to think pretty carefully about that in terms of contention and uh, connection pooling uh, and concurrency. So where the data is actually going, where state being held, is a key consideration for how you're establishing where you're going to put your APIs. I'll be honest with you, there are some applications I don't think are gonna to move to a microservice architecture in my lifetime. I mean, take SAP for instance. SAP is like pretty monolithic. And yet, I keep talking to customers that say, oh yeah, you know, we, we set up this API and we pull a data dump out of SAP, we do uh, all this event-driven work with Lambda and then we're off to the races. And I was like, whoa, 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 why are you doing this? You can just call SAP and they'll make those modifications for you. It's, it's part of their normal uh, uh, customization. And they was like, yeah. But then we have to call SAP. Effectively, they're chipping away at the functionality of SAP in favor of speed because they, they're able to build stuff over the weekend that satisfies their needs and, and then they move on. This is a very interesting idea um, that we see happening um, as monoliths uh, uh, start to age is how you're chipping away at that functionality. So let's spend a little bit on, uh, on serverless in particular. So let's start with compute. <clears throat> compute. So back in my day, we had physical machines, right? And these physical machines uh, required a lot of guest planning. Um, how many of you are managing uh, uh, on-prem data centers in some capacity today? Awesome. Do you know what your CPU utilization is? Is it above 10? Is it above 20? Well, that means you, you have a lot of excess capacity within your data center because it's very difficult to plan for. So then we had this great idea. We're gonna have virtual machines, right? We had VMware, we have AWS Cloud. This is elastic, only pay for what you use, scale almost infinitely, except it's not really true because you still have excess capacity of your CPU, right? So you're still paying for resources that you're not using. And then we had containerization, which was great, you know, because back in the day, you know, with physical servers, we used to call those people, uh, you know, server huggers because they love the blinking lights. And then we got to containers and we used to call those folks uh, cluster huggers because, you know, like, oh, I got my cluster. It's right here. It feels good. And containers did a great job of uh, decoupling and isolating resources. But at the end of the day, we're still managing servers. So then we had serverless come along. And we got two flavors for compute, Lambda and Fargate. And each have give gets about which one you would choose. Again, this is like a whole session in itself where we can talk about the give gets with what technology you're going to use for your serverless application. And at the end of the day, I'm not sure that I care that much as long as you're not managing servers. Because you gotta figure out, do I wanna manage servers? Where's my North Star, where I wanna go? Oh, this one's a heavy topic too. How many of you have been able to figure out your TCO of your serverless stack before you started? Okay, nobody raised their hands, just want to be super clear. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty tough, right? Because you have to figure out what is the duration of the execution in order to estimate cost, which you can only do after you write the code. Okay, that sucks, admittedly. But at the same time, you know, there, there, there's a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. Additionally, let's talk about two pizza teams a little bit and how that affects TCO. So back in the day, you know, we have de development over here, we have ops over here. So normally these guys get really busy and they throw stuff over the fence on a Friday afternoon at launch. Operations have to deal with really buggy code. They don't know how to scale out, no disaster recovery or how to optimize for servers. These guys hate these guys, right? This is normal. And then we had this two pizza team idea. It's fabulous. We're gonna put dev, ops together, woo! Because we found if you put pagers on developers, you get better code. That was supposed to be funny. 
All right, so how do you get more out of a finite team? We've already said it's four to six individuals. Well, you take more and more heavy lifting off the team. Now, when we gave them cloud or elastic resources, great, they don't have to go through a procurement cycle. All they have to do is say, great, I'm gonna get some instances, it's gonna be awesome. But then we took it a step further with serverless because all the problems that you have over here, you now have to solve over there, right? Because we're writing infrastructure as code. So it shifts the dynamic of what these teams are doing when ops is no longer going, gosh, I don't know, is this an M4 8XL? Maybe I should migrate to the M5. Oh, can I risk the downtime? Well, all of those choices go away when you're using a serverless compute. So these are some of the considerations um, we like to ask like about whether or you know, like how are we configuring out TCO? So TCO has two components, tangible and intangible. The tangible is more of what we're used to thinking about compute. You know, we're comparing what is the cost of Lambda compared to EC2 or uh, my existing server farm. Okay, that's one way to look at it. Um, is this network intensive? Uh, are there any other managed services that are, we are going to be enabled to use because we're using Lambda? It's also another key consideration because I've got a lot of customers where compute's no longer the biggest part of their bill. I know, it's crazy. But most of the time, you know, your compute's like 70% of your AWS bill. What if that changes? Why does it change? Is it because you're relying on other managed services? Probably. So when we're trying to figure out TCO, the tangible stuff can be a little tricky until you actually write executable code. So that's that last question. Have you tested a single event to establish the function duration? There's another large media company that I was working with earlier this year that estimated that their Lambda bill was gonna be $1 million per month. And I was like, holy moly, that's a lot of Lambda, right? Million? Who has a million? And I was like, cool, have you done a code review? And they were like, no, but we know it's gonna cost a million dollars. We don't wanna do a code review. Uh, this is just way too expensive. We're gonna, we're gonna go back to containers. I'm like, cool, cool. So when you write the code, let's just see you know, what it's gonna cost. Turns out once they were able to write the code and we helped them with some tuning with asynchronous and synchronous calls, uh, it was gonna cost $97,000 per month. One-tenth the cost. That's what I'm saying is this stuff is hard to estimate until you actually write the executable code. So we have to understand that these ideas are fundamentally different and how they're estimated are different. And then we gotta talk about the intangible cost because it's not EC2 or your raw compute cost that you need to hang your hat on, but rather it is your developer and operational time. That is your most expensive resource, not the compute piece. So one of the reasons why a lot of folks are moving into a serverless first strategy, like T-Mobile and a few other folks, is exactly because this reason, um, because they're able to move a lot faster when they're no longer in putting the weight of compute management onto their two pizza team. So this example, I think, does a pretty good job of running through some of the numbers. So while I don't yet have an easy button that um, you guys can push and say, all right, if I move this monolith into serverless microservice, it's gonna cost me what? I want that easy button so bad I can taste it. I still don't have one yet. Instead, we ran through a comparative analysis taking the same code and giving an example on EC2 compared to um, serverless. So Deloitte published this white paper uh, and I put the big ugly URL right there in order to try to understand what was the cost difference in the tangible cost perspective. And then I wanted to take a look at the intangible costs, like does it enable us to launch more apps faster? Are we increasing deployment frequency? Um, what does this mean as far as time to market? There's another uh, white paper out there specifically from uh, IDC that gives a quantitative value to some of those intangibles as far as how much uh, uh, time is reduced uh, by uh, moving to serverless microservice and then what is the value 
of that back into the organization. So what we have found is while the TCO and the tangible stuff is pretty good, you know, Deloitte white paper, and it's not that way for every application, but it is for a lot, the intangible costs are the real reason why most customers are moving to serverless microservices. All right, so I hinted at this before, but serverless is really more than compute. Compute becomes just a minor component in your road to building a serverless stack. So one of those things that we need to talk about first is event, uh, sorry, event brokers. Right, so how are you managing and triggering the lambdas becomes critically important. This is now the neural system or the nervous system of your application. How many of you guys have ever managed a messaging broker? Yeah, did you work on mainframes too? Yeah, no? Did you work on mainframes? I'm seriously asking. Anybody work on COBOL? All right, cool, because you're gonna love my jokes later. Um, Managing a messaging broker is not the most exciting thing ever. Uh, it has to be deterministic, it has to be super low cost, it has to have super low latency, and be very, very elastic because the traffic is often unpredictable for internal systems. So, how many of you all know what the first uh, product we ever, or service we ever launched at AWS? It was an S3 and it was an EC2. It was SQS. Because how are we activating uh, the APIs between the two pizza teams. It's kind of important to figure out how to manage the messaging broker. So the rise of the messaging broker is inherently linked to microservice architectures. So not only do we need to consider the messaging and integration brokers, but the data store also becomes really critically important when you can no longer hand hold state within the compute. You're going to have to think about state differently. And that's a huge mind twist for a lot of developers because I grew up with totally stateful programming. You, you have to sort of swallow the Kool-Aid and go, oh, maybe I don't need state or maybe I can use state differently. And then how I'm storing it and using that state inherently becomes differently in how you're writing the code. So let's talk about that a little bit more. This is a pun, orchestration, orchestra. It's hilarious. I didn't have a better picture. Um, when we think about what happens with orchestration, you kind of got to roll it back to object-oriented programming. How many of you guys were .NET developers? Come on, loud and proud. Admit it. Um, the thing with .NET is you're mainly writing orchestration in the main body of the program, and then you are handling, uh, sort of divvying up the work with classes into each uh, 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 team by the class definition. But orchestration, that's the main body of the program. What if orchestration was no longer in the purview of the developer? Because orchestration is basically a workflow on steroids. It's an interesting idea that your developer is no longer sitting in, the, in writing code for orchestration, but rather is handling orchestration with a workflow tool. Now here's an, another weird thing when you think about it. Personally, I think any workflow, whether it's supply chain management on down to code, is ripe for machine learning. What if you start applying machine learning at the application tier, inherent into the DNA of whatever you're writing to help with optimization? It's a very Skynet idea, but it also will catapult your organization to thinking about machine learning differently. It's no longer, oh, we're gonna start this machine learning project, where's all my data, and I'm gonna apply it. No, it's just integrated, this is just what we do. I have a few organizations that are going this route more aggressively than others. This is a huge mind twist um, for most developers to get used to. This is my favorite part of the presentation, so we're gonna geek out for a second. If you don't like Star Wars, I'm really sorry, but it's gonna get weird quick, all right? Changes to the database within a microservice architecture and with serverless is awesome. Because a lot of times we have monolithic database uh, structures, you know, like Amazon.com, we were all on Oracle, it was a master-slave configuration, but then, dun, 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 Oracle went down for three days. It went down, we couldn't get it back up. So, by 2007, we had a pretty good idea of how much money we were making per minute, and that made us super sad, because our database has now become the bottleneck to our business. And we all know, so let's imagine, for instance, that our monolithic 
master-slave relational database is like the Death Star, all right? Um, one, one version of the truth sort of unites them all. All right, great, got the Death Star. And then we can imagine our microservice architecture as a collection of TIE fighters coordinating back into the Death Star. And we all know what happened to the Death Star, right? Twice, just saying, maybe we can have a different architecture diagram. So we have some problems in terms of concurrency, contingency, connection pooling, all the Cs. So what if we did something different? Let's imagine our microservice architecture as a collection of X-wings. What is the key technological advantage between an X-wing and a TIE fighter? You're all answering and I can't hear you. That's awesome. So we're gonna skip to the punchline. It's R2-D2. Basically, if you're putting your database in the back seat, you're no longer coordinating with a monolithic resource. You now have a distributed database strategy. So each X-wing is effectively a microservice. Now, you take out an X-wing, what happens? Not much, they keep fighting. You take out the Death Star, just saying. All right. So, Thinking about your database, how many of y'all are DBAs? This is not really a DBA session, so I'll be surprised if I got anybody. DBA? Nope, just me, awesome. All right, this usually makes them cry a little bit because when you're thinking about uh, how do I normalize between heterogeneous databases, that should scare the poop out of you. But it's not that scary. It actually gives you a ton of flexibility to use the right database for the job. Any of your teams still writing stored procedures? Raise your hand. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> Stop doing that. I'm like, I don't care if you remember anything uh, other part of this presentation. It's a weird presentation anyway, but this would be the one key takeaway, guys. Stop writing stored procedures. Look, back in the day, it was a super awesome idea to put your logic as close to the database as possible for latency, right? I mean, let's think about it this way. Um, see, late 1970s, early 80s, what was the most expensive piece of your infrastructure? Storage, right? I mean, disk was crazy expensive. Uh, today, what's the cheapest piece of your infrastructure? I'll give you a hint, it starts with an S. Why are we building databases that are great for optimizing for storage in the same way? Why don't we build our databases differently and then use the right database for the job? So with a distributed architecture, it gives you the freedom to do stuff like that. Now, you all probably read that um, Amazon.com has turned off its last uh, Oracle database. This was an evolution that started back in 2007 but there wasn't really any other options in 2007 besides using our Oracle databases. We had to invent non-relational databases and DynamoDB as a great place to go. Now DynamoDB scales like beautifully in this scenario. Now, and I'm one of those people that I love relational databases still too. I mean, you know, I still think they have a place in the world. So then you have to say, well, if relational scales really well and non-relational scales really well, which one do I choose? Let's go back to your two pizza team. You got four to six individuals. Are any of those individuals DBAs? No. Nobody knows how to normalize on that team. This is why a lot of times we like to choose non-relational databases because we're able to scale the people out even faster when we don't have to think about normalization. It also helps us recover from what used to be colossal database mistakes because we don't have an elaborate schema that we're messing with and combining and pulling out non-relational databases or data in non-relational databases is inherently a heck of a lot easier. So our relational database is no longer this monolith that we have to spend weeks and months and years getting the schema and the joins exactly right. Instead, we can move a lot faster and our data can have a lot more agility. Now specifically within this diagram, as the data ages, we cart it off into some other data store. It could be S3 or Redshift or whatever, because this is great for like, I don't know, OLTP-ish type queries, but when you get into the OLAP-ish stuff, 
overlapish, that's a word too, then you're probably going to want to consider a different tool for the job and export that data as it cools into a different resource. Just something to think about. So when we think about infrastructure as code, who controls your costs? Probably the person writing the code. Again, this should scare the crud out of you. I mean, as a developer, I personally believe servers are free. I don't have to worry about cost. Except, well, not all developers are created equal. I've been teaching my son to code for a number of years. He's nine now. And if I swear if I don't sit on that kid's head, he will not write an array. He just won't. Uh, instead, he just copies and pastes the code, which is, you know, less efficient. Well, now, because mom's paying the bill for the per CPU cycle, I care a lot about how elegantly he writes code. I even care about what languages he's using because that has an impact on my TCO because I'm paying per CPU cycle. Well, 100 milliseconds, but you get my point. So now here comes the mainframe part, which was like three of you and I have no DBA, so that's a weird mix. When you're writing infrastructure as code, this should sound pretty familiar because when you write in COBOL, you have to assign vCPU at the function level. Okay, there's no other way to handle your resource allocation because you've got one box, right? And you don't want your function to sort of take over the entire box, so you have to assign vCPU at the function level as you're writing this code. Does that sound familiar? Because that's basically Lambda. What is old is new again. So when we think about the relationship of aligning our code to CPU optimization, the other idea that inherently comes up in this is the role of the messaging broker. Because the messaging broker is carrying all of the messages that are activating the microservice architecture. So these two ideas that honestly are pretty old are rising in prominence again from how people are developing overall architectures. Oh, all right, serverless adoption patterns. Let, let's see what people are actually doing in the wild. All right, so some of you are over here. You got legacy architectures, you still have on-prem stuff. You wanna get over there because you get in the cloud and you get microservice architectures. Woohoo! that's Nirvana. By the way, this is not the graphic I wanted to use, but uh, legal said I couldn't use the cover of Smells Like Team Spirit, so that made me sad. Because I really do mean this in the Seattle way, not necessarily in the Buddhist way. How do we get over there from over here? So. A lot of folks are still doing stuff like lift and shift. There we go. Um, meaning they're carting it off into EC2. And then they'll adopt a containerization strategy in order to get the agility and cost savings over there. Or they'll do containers first and then cart it up into the cloud. Pack it up in boxes first, right? And then I've got some customers like Fannie Mae who are skipping a bunch of steps. Mind you, their migration pattern, I would call a leapfrog because, wow, they're skipping about 40 years of IT with the stuff that they're carting up into the cloud. But it tends to be pretty old stuff that needs to be refactored anyway. In the case of MasterStream that we talked about earlier, they adopted a lift and fist shift strategy first and then moved to serverless. But especially with a lot of legacy applications, it kind of makes sense to see how far they can go in just one jump. And the folks that tend to be doing this the most are folks in financial services. One, I think they understand the um, TCO of moving to serverless, but they also inherently understand event-driven architectures, right? That's pretty much where the mainframes still are. There's a lot of Midwest banks that went off their AS400s. But it is event-driven architecture. Every time an, a, th a, a transaction happens within uh, uh, the organization, compute is consumed. So moving to event-driven architectures, well, the only thing missing for these guys is to understand how to integrate an overarching API strategy that unites their event-driven architectures. The next adoption pattern is actually far, far more common than the leapfrog one. And this is what most folks are getting started with. Oop. So it starts over here in log processing, you know, cron jobs, um, 
IT automation workloads. Nobody has to go through a procurement cycle, ask permission, sprinkle a little lambda in when nobody's noticing. You may be familiar with this as shadow IT. I'm just saying it happens. It's still a major adoption pattern. But nobody's going through a major security review for it. We found that a lot of folks get started here because it's easy. And a lot of times it's the developers that are integrating uh, Lambda into their existing processes first. But then we get over here to data transformation because we're like, whoa, that was easy. Maybe we can have event triggers as our data is moving from one place to another. This primarily takes on two flavors, linear and nonlinear. Linear data transformation would be something like an IoT data ingestion pipeline where you have a ton of data coming in from your devices. Maybe you're doing some light ETL with Lambda. It goes off to a data store, maybe it's S3 or Dynamo or even a relational database. Then more transformation with Lambda and then off to uh, the end user. That is a real-time, completely event-driven pipeline. Now, what should be the pipe dream of um, most of your CFOs is how do I get my infrastructure costs to directly correspond with revenue? With event-driven architectures, you can actually do that. Um, I have one customer that uh, is in agriculture, and uh, their bill went down 50% on uh, this, their serverless stack. And I was pulled into one of the vice president's offices like, well, how's your relationship with this customer? And I'm like, it's good. They wear a lot of plaid, it's agriculture. It's good. <laughs> they said, but their bill has gone down 50%. They're moving off our platform. I'm like, nope, it's summer. Tractors don't run. It's North America. Their bill greatly fluctuates per the North American growing season because, well, the IoT devices aren't being activated. And you don't have to do that just on a seasonal level. You can do that with every event where your, tr your customers are triggering. And then if you can calculate a cost per API request, ooh, ooh, now you're cooking with bacon, right? Or whatever you want to cook with. I like bacon. You're able to tell how to track your cost of your infrastructure directly with as your customers are coming. Ooh, let's go back. The other example would be nonlinear. How many of you have gamers? Yeah, it's never the COBOL people, just so you know, never the same data set. It's not even a Venn diagram, they're over here. The thing with gaming is like one of the largest trends is gamer profiling. Like how do I maintain inventory between heterogeneous games within the same platform? That gives continuity and a more individualistic experience. Like so when I play, oh, what's a good game? Uh, Mario Kart, I have a different experience than my nine-year-old kid because I've been playing for <laughs> years. That sort of experience and personalization is actually a massive data problem. So I was working with one company that their architecture diagram looked like this. It was spaghetti and meatballs thrown up against a wall and there were no servers. And I was like, hey, what's the deal? There's like no servers on this diagram. It was completely event-driven and they had these little lightning bolts on each line to trigger the data transformation between the various data stores uh, and data islands of whatever temperature. They no longer thought of the servers as an area of gravity. Their gravity was the data, and the compute was just uh, that little thing that sort of happened on the side. This is a sort of a next step past what some customers are doing with data lakes. They're choosing the right data store for the job, and they're not really focused on compute at all anymore. Compute is what happens between the data stores. The last stage in this uh, evolution, whoop, wrong button, is to get on to uh, microservices. But in order to get to microservice, you kind of have to have executive buy-in because you're changing your organizational structure. You're changing uh, rapid development. It changes your time to market. Um, you start to think, oh my gosh, do I have vendor lock-in with AWS because I'm using Lambda? These considerations are, is really where you get into the bottoms up meets top down. And we see organizations uh, moving very aggressively once they, they get to this critical step. I would say most of the customers that I talk to are going through these adoption phases, but they really hockey stick right about where the bottoms up meets the top down because then they get aligned on why they're doing it in the first place. The last pattern of adoption that we've seen with customers is Strangler Pattern. How many of y'all are familiar with Strangler Pattern? 
Sweet, not everybody, so I still get to tell the story. All right, Martin Fowler uh, went on vacation. He went on vacation to Australia, and he was struggling for the appropriate metaphor to explain how do you decompose monolithic applications. And he looked around, and there was a bunch of vines growing on trees. They're called strangler vines. It has nothing to do with Jack the Ripper, and a lot to do with horticulture. Because the vines are growing on the trees, and eventually the biomass becomes all vines and no tree. And so the tree is effectively decomposed to a number of component parts, very much like the decomposition of a monolithic uh, application into microservices. Cool. So the strangler pattern is exactly the pattern that we saw with a number of customers that are experiencing migration from monolithic applications, such as Amazon.com, as well as MasterStream, and a number of other organizations. And there's no one pattern. Everybody is on sort of a different path at different stages and within different parts of their organization. A lot of times I'll have executives ask me, it was like, what, what about containers? Should I be thinking about this should be our strategy? And I'm like, absolutely not. It should be simultaneous. Like, you've got to figure out where your North Star is. Where is your Nirvana? Is, if, you, if your Nirvana is, wow, in three to five years, I don't want my people having to manage servers anymore, cool. Make decisions that are taking you closer to that and not further away. If you want to use containers for migrations, because I got to tell you, a developer's appetite for rewriting an application they just finished two years ago into uh, microservices is pretty much nil. Then containers is a great option. But continuing to maintain servers and monolithic applications and monolithic databases is not where I see most customers going today. They were adopting these distributed systems in order to create resiliency and cost-effectiveness um, uh, and a better security stance. So a lot of times they have to assess, they, they, they assess where they are on a spectrum as far as like how customer-obsessed are they? Are they able to respond to their customer changes with a lot of agility? Are they organized for providing value back into the organization? Do they have a learning culture or do they have folks that have a lot of certifications within a given technology set? Are they technologists at their core? And are they making strategic use of that data? Now, they could be anywhere along the spectrum, and they need to figure out how they need to get to the other end of the spectrum. And not all steps are going to be the same for all organizations. So we're seeing this paradigm shift. We saw a major paradigm shift in terms of the overarching uh, delivery and DevOps with the rise of microservices or two pizza teams. We saw a major paradigm shift with compute as far as how are we abstracting all of the heavy lifting off of managing the servers. Because at the end of the day, we want to win customers, right? We, we want to grow our businesses. But that means we're probably going to have to build better products. We have to innovate more often. It means faster releases focusing on the business talk, uh, logic, and then decoupling these systems so that we can effectively move faster. And that's it. That's my presentation for today. Like I said, we had to cover a lot of ground and a lot of different topics. We're not going to do a Q&A here, but uh, I'm going to go out into the main hall, and I'd be more than happy to talk to anybody uh, if you have any questions about the presentation. Thank you very much for coming.